Hello and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picturehouse podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. And this June, we're in June, guys, June of 2023. This June is an exceptional month for independent cinema. There are so many wonderful films coming to your local Picturehouse, including a handful, which we will cover on this podcast. Sometimes, you know, we're short for, you know, quality films to to play on the big screen. Often there may be one or two sort of like big studio films that just dominate. You know, not say they won't be good. Last year we were playing Top Gun Maverick for months and months and months over summer. And that was a fantastic film. But that was kind of like the only thing (laughs) we were playing. There were a couple of other films, of course, but it, it felt like that one really dominated. Whereas this summer is absolutely stacked. We've got some really highly anticipated films coming out over over the summer that does kick off in june i would say we've got things later in the month like asteroid city from director wes anderson and at the very very end of june we've got the brand new indiana jones film indiana jones and the dial of destiny so those are coming up but what we wanted to do on this podcast was shine a light on some of the smaller more independently spirited films which are coming to your local picture house before then before the behemoths and i'm really pleased to be joined on this episode of the show on this podcast by two guests film critics for returning listeners to the show you will know that on every episode we welcome two new voices onto the podcast to review a handful of films uh, with us i quite like doing this it gets a different perspective on every film we play and every podcast sounds a little bit different because we always have a different dynamic between our guest critics on our june edition of the show i'm very delighted to welcome for the very first time akua giamphi and leon main who will guide us through our film reviews We've also got two director interviews. Uh, Dion Edwards uh, will be on the show later speaking to Ogo Ajoy, who's a new presenter for us doing our interviews. That's a fantastic conversation. And then I had the pleasure of speaking to director Rob Savage about his film, The Boogeyman, and that will come up at the very end of the show. Right now, though, let's get down to the matter at hand. Let's review a film. Our first film on the podcast this month is Pretty Red Dress, directed by Dion Edwards. It's in cinemas on Friday the 16th of June, and the film stars Alexandra Burke and Natey Jones. And this is what Akua and Leon thought of the movie. How's wife? She's working hard on her singing and her acting and that. How did you afford this? We can't become ourselves until we find ourselves. And I really believe that my little brother Travis is finding himself right now. So, Queer, we've just been to see Pretty Red Dress. What did you think of it? I liked it. I'm really proud of this project from Dion Edwards, her debut directorial feature after doing a couple of shorts. And I guess what it's about is a young man called Travis who's just come out of jail. He comes home to his missus, um, who's played by Alexandra Burke, a woman called Candice, and their daughter, Kanisha. You know, coming home from prison, he's got to adjust back into family life and, I guess, normal settings. But as time reveals, his missus, who's an aspiring West End theatre performer, has to get ready for some audition. And in that, she needs a very nice outfit, and he gets her this red dress, which is really beautiful it's got tassels and all that type of stuff and it's there where you start to see the unfolding of his connection to this dress and how his connection to this dress kind of affects and ripples through the family but yeah I really liked it I think it's a very intricate look at masculinity and what that actually means especially when you're in a relationship a heterosexual relationship what did you think 
Yeah, I thought it was really good and just kind of like echoing what you were saying in regards to I'm 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 gonna be very literal and say, you know, black male masculinity. I think, you know, we've had inklings of it across projects before. Obviously the most famous one currently is Moonlight, but I think it was nice to see it from a British perspective and it definitely is certainly a different angle as well. Courtney Jones was amazing in his character. And I think more so from being a black male seeing in in that regard. Well, I don't want to obviously give any spoilers, but the idea that you can be yourself and you will get some grief for it. But in the end, as long as you are yourself, you know, nothing else kind of trumps that. I thought that was really beautiful. As a trio, I think it carried really well. And it was nice to see kind of paralleling themes in regards to what, not only what masculinity is, but what, what, what gender is as well and what sexuality is as well. When we look at the daughter's storyline, which I don't know if we can spoil it, but I think it was great that in order for him to be himself, he actually, he saw something within his daughter that enabled him to to, to grow into who he is. So yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it from that perspective also. Yeah, I agree. It's really in, in difficult to walk around this without spoiling it because the, 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 those mean moments are key. But I wanted to just go into the, the chemistry between Alexandra Burke who plays Candice and Nate Jones, it was very natural. And this is Alexander's first kind of feature role in like in a spotlight. She's done she's done West End, but this is a different beast, as it were, leading a feature film. And she, I think she handled it really well. I believed her, I believed their setup, I believed the family dynamic. And it was very authentic in its delivery. And I think there's a moment when they have a family party, and I think that's one of the best captures of a black party. It seemed very real and genuine and the way events fall out within that party, I felt that was really natural. And just because when you're looking at black British film, it's a rarity to see our lives depicted in an honest way. So when I see moments of interaction and dialogue and character and how they move through their worlds, I'm extra vigilant to make sure that we're captured properly. And I think Dion's done really well in this and this being her debut as a director and screenwriter for a feature i'm really excited to see what she does and where she goes with it but i always wonder how films that explore black male masculinity will be received by wider audiences because we do want these stories to travel and we do want these stories to resonate with a community that's underrepresented but because we're so widely underrepresented i know that people might feel some type of way seeing a story about a man that's essentially cross-dressing but I'm also excited for the conversations that this will spur whether they're positive or negative and just looking at where we can find common ground in the middle because these stories do need to be told let's go somewhere new see worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars inspiration comes when we feel something new that's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Well, thank you, Akua and Leon, for that. This film sounds incredible. I haven't seen it yet, but I have seen a trailer, and I do recommend... We'll put a trailer in the show notes, a link to watch it. I do recommend watching the trailer, listeners. It looks absolutely fantastic. And yeah, to carry on our conversations about Pretty Red Dress, we actually spoke to the director, Dion Edwards, who joins us now speaking to Ogo Ajoy, who recorded this a couple of weeks ago, uh, just before the film's premiere in the UK. Nice to meet you. This feels very like surreal. I feel a bit starstruck. (laughs) I'm meeting the person that literally just made this film that I watched over the weekend. Like, 
how do you feel? It's kind of a bit, yeah, surreal. Yeah, it doesn't feel real that this is coming out. It's mm. been such a long journey. It's been like, I mean, it was the end of 2013 that I was like messing about with the idea. And then, yeah, like sort of went for a whole journey of development and then COVID shutting us down and all of that. And then finally we've got this release this year. I'm just like, yeah, it's amazing. Definitely. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until like the trailer came out that I was like, this Whoa. feels real. Yeah. Even though we screened it to audiences and stuff. So yeah. It's great. Yeah. You've just told me how, you know, it didn't feel real until you watched the trailer, until it dropped. And then, of course, it was screened at the film festival. What's the best reaction you've gotten from it so far? Watching it with an audience for the first time that wasn't our cast and crew was a ride. Mm. I am not a huge fan of watching the stuff with an audience, even though I'd kind of design it for an audience because it's stressful. Um, Why is it stressful? Oh, it's just because there's all the things of like... There's that saying of like, you always abandon a film, you never really finish it. And so, and then there's like, you can see compromises and you can see all the things that you wish you could do. But we landed on a film like that I am really proud of and we kind of got to the end of it and like, this is the best we can do. So you sit there and you, but you always see those little things, I think, well, I do anyway. And then you sit there with an audience, which I think pushes the adrenaline mm. up anyway. Mm. And then you combine the two of them and just even when the audience is reacting really well and responding, which they did with this on the two screenings that I went to. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, something that stresses me out. Well, then I guess as audience members, they're not gonna know what I guess you think were mi was missing. Yeah, Cause yeah, yeah. I do the same, like obviously when I do interviews, I'm like, oh, I should have asked this, should have asked that. But to the viewers watching, they're just consuming the great That's content. So they're never gonna know yeah, like yeah. what was missing. Exactly. And what was your why behind it? Like getting it from script to screen, like what was the why? Like, why this film? Why, why this story? Um, I was think I was searching for, my, like, the first feature idea. Like, I played around with a lot of different things. I usually get, it's either a kind of feeling or a mood or a character. And for me, the character came first, Travis. And I just enjoyed, like, exploring things with him and unpacking stuff for him. And I just thought it'd be really interesting if you had this character that, you know, almost feels archetypal. You, you kind of start out with a black man coming out of prison, right? And you kind of think it's going to be, you know, your standard kind of British hood film. They're not really standard to me. I actually really enjoy them. You know, I think I enjoy series Top Boy. I was involved in, in it as well in the third season of it. And Bullet Boy and, you know, Ill Manners and all those kind of early 2000s, like, British gang films and stuff. And that that's, those have been the kind of primary black British films. And I just enjoyed, like, taking this character that I kind of thought up and delved into my imagination with, but then also looked at the form of some of these films and played around a little bit. And yeah, that's, that's how it happened. I was just thinking about those and thinking about how the character and his family would fit in within that genre. And then I kind of pulled from other films that I love as well. I love how you talked about black British films because I was going to do like this whole section on black cinema yeah. because I love those types of films as well. Mm -hmm. Like obviously like series like Top Boy, mm -hmm. Rye Lane, I don't know if you checked out Rye, Rye Lane, Lane yeah, Boxing I watched that. Day. I, watched I think black ago. British cinema is evolving and yeah. changing. And I was recently at, at a talk um, with Ratman because he's got Sick. a series coming out, yeah, Supercell. Yeah. And very excited for it, right? Yeah, I can't yeah, wait. Yeah. Um, but he was saying how the reason why he wanted to make it, or partly why, is because, and why he wanted to make it different, um, is because he would see like British cinema and he was like, it has a look. It's kind of different to what, like, he'd go over to the States, switch on the TV and see, mm. you know, TV. He goes, British cinema is, is different. And he wanted, mm. to, wanted it to look, I guess, like the Western, uh, like American TV, or mm -hmm, just look better. Mm -hmm. So do you agree that British cinema has a certain look? 
Like how, how mm. would you, how would you, what do you think about that? That's interesting. I mean, some of it is just down to budget. Mm. <laughs> we don't have the same types of budget. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's like a there's often especially like dramas. I mean, he his is it's a superhero series, yeah, it's right? Yeah, superhero so, series. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's budget. Like that's one of the main things. And then America is just sort of within a tradition of like superhero stuff and fantasy, and so they elevate it to another level. But I do think like Britain's got this like kitchen sink thing going on mm. of like especially it's low budget or indie films if you like. They they. They like to be a little bit raw, and I think sometimes filmmakers kind of approach it in this very like Ken Loach way, or you know, just just you know, quite raw, quite stark. Kind of lets you know, kind of push the grit in them. And for me, with Pretty Red Dress, I was thinking about the grit, but also the glamour, which mm. is like I say, and I've been, you know, my producer Georgia like came out, came up with it, I think, and like I really loved it. And yeah, it's just like embracing the grit and the glamour. And I'd say that, yeah, I enjoy Kitchen Sink, you know, or British independent films. And I think there is a place for it, but also it's really fun when you can elevate something. And I think that's probably what Ratman was touching on, that, you know, cinema's like a canvas, right? It's a screen. You can kind of do what you want. And sometimes people want to come in and see themselves on screen, but there's a lot of different ways you can do that. And mm. you can kind of view it like you're a painter and you can use colour, you can use sound, you can use movement, like rhythm and cutting to you know, really immerse people. And I think, yeah, that's probably what I think what he was touching on. And I agree as well. That's the, the kind, those are the kind of films that I love. Like I love Do the Right Thing, for example, yeah. you know, Spike Lee, like that's taking something that is just kind of an order, ordinary neighborhood. Well, it's not the ordinary, you know, a big thing happens, but like it's a neighborhood story. It's set in the streets, but it's just like wonderfully like elevated. Yeah. yeah. I think when as a black person, like consuming black films and movies and TV, I think when I see myself in it, that's when I'm like immersed, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like seeing this movie and just seeing how Kanisha was at school, I was like, oh my God, like, this was how it was when I was at school. Like this is how the kids would talk. Yeah. You have the those pretty girls who, yes, are always like just, you think they're your friends, but they're not, you know? <laughs> yeah, like I think it's so important. It goes back to representation. Mm -hmm. And um, Natey Jones, he killed it as Travis. Yes, How did. did you find him? And what was it like working with him? And was it collaborative, you know, your relationship on mm -hmm. set? Yeah, Natey Jones, absolutely amazing. He sort of came to this very last minute in the casting process for us because we were, I tell this story a lot, but we were sort of on the edge. We were kind of thinking that maybe we should give up because really? we were getting close to pre-production and we just really weren't finding that person. We did big casting sessions. We were trying going through a lot of different actors and some of them were really good with like the sort of hood side of things, like just, you know, the tough guy side. Some of them were, were really comfortable with expressing their feminine side and, you know, approaching all that, that, that side of themselves. And like, there just weren't, there wasn't really that kind of middle thing or hitting on both of them, you know. It's always hard to cast an actor anyway for a role because you've got this idea in your head and then, you know, someone's got to fit into that. And you want an actor who's going to take fit into it but also kind of transcend it and take it to the next level. And Natey sent in a tape and, like, his first tape, I, I, I remember watching and I wasn't sure and I think it's because we were just going through so many people and really not finding it and there was a lot of stress around it. Um, and I wasn't sure about it, but Georgia, um, the producer, was like, no, 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 look at it again, look at it again. And I, every time I looked at that same tape, it was like, ah, this is really, really interesting. Thing. And then he did his second one and it was just like blew, they blew me away. And yeah, when I met him in person, I was just like, okay, this is the character. And he is just brave and I think mm. able to like go for things. Yeah. Um, and he's able to tap into like a mysteriousness 
he does a lot with a little, you know what I mean, with his face. And there's so many scenes where he's just wonderful. He's not really saying much, you know. He's not like the Candice character who's just like, you know, Alexandra Burke plays her amazingly, but she's like loud and, you know, not afraid to speak her mind. He, in many ways, is afraid to speak his mind. And I think Nate did such an amazing job with just using silence and stillness in many ways but then also he's like from the theater so he's kind of if you watch the beginning of the film and the way the character walks to the end you see that kind of physical evolution as well so i think coming from the stage that kind of brought this amazing like physicality to the character as well so he really like embodies all of those things and we just yeah i'm just yeah i don't know how it happened but i'm just nah he's sick so lucky he's sick i can't wait to see him do this I really hope so. Go up and up in in this People aren't ready. He's just amazing. Thank you very much for joining us, Dion and Virogo, for covering that interview for us. As we're recording this, we're about to do a very special preview screening at the Ritzy in Brixton. If you're listening to this podcast as soon as it drops, tickets will still be available. We've got a Q&A with Dion, with Alexandra Burke and Nati Jones, the two uh, leads of the film, in Ritzy Screen 1, a really buzzy, uh, cool opening night screening. Uh, so I'll put a link to tickets for that special preview plus Q&A in the show notes also. Coming to cinemas a little before Pretty Red Dress on the 9th of June is the new film War Pony, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Actually won a prize. It won the Camera Door, which is the award for sort of best new film, best first feature film. That went to the co-directors of this film, Riley Keough, the actress Riley Keough, now turned director, and her co-director Gina Gamble. In cinemas on the 9th of June, the film is called War Pony, and here is Akua and Leon to give their thoughts on the movie. Yo, what did you do? I don't want you here no more. If you let me stay, I'll work for you for free. I don't speak Lakota. Okay, so we've just watched Warpony. Leon, what did you think? I enjoyed it. It was really good. I didn't know what it was about coming into it, but I was quietly surprised by how authentic and real it was so it's basically about two young boys from a native american reserve in dakota in america and basically they're kind of living parallel lives and navigating the space as young boys who unfortunately well one comes from an abusive background one is only 12 12 to 13 years old but he's wise beyond these years and comes from an abusive background in terms of having a father who's not particularly fatherly and him trying to hustle the young boy himself trying to hustle to not only get money, but also love in some respect as well, because he's kind of yearning for it for something that his father doesn't give him. And on the other side, you have a 19 to 20 year old called Bill, who has two children and is also navigating love to a degree as well, trying to gain the love of his current baby mother, whilst also hustling for money. And I just thought it was great. It felt like, even though they're two separate people, it almost felt like two different timelines, like it was two different parts of uh, these boys' life. And it was really interesting seeing, I can only imagine that's an, it's an authentic depiction of how certain people live within those particular reservations. And I really, really enjoyed the symbolism within the project, whether it is the parallel in stories or, or moments where they're seeing animals that kind of represent an animalistic instinct that they have to take on because they have to kind of navigate the world by themselves. And also just kind of like just everyday life. It was bittersweet. It was nice, but bittersweet because you know you don't know, you don't ever want to see like young boys having to fend for themselves so early and not necessarily having the the help that that, that they need. But it was really really nice. 
I remember hearing about this when I was in Cannes last year. It showed in certain regard, what they call it. And there was conversation about who gets to tell these type of stories because it's from Riley Keough, who's actually the granddaughter of Elvis. And she's an actress, but then she, I think on the film American Honey, she met some of the co-writers who were Bill Reddy and Franklin Shield Bob. So they were extras on American Honey. And then they, I think they got to talking with Riley and her co-director, Gina Gamble. They got talking about this story that they wanted to tell about life on the reservation. And so they came together with, and with their, I guess, with Riley and um, Gina's power or privilege of, or access to Hollywood, they supported this story getting made. So there was a conversation about who gets to tell these stories. And obviously Can has had this ongoing conversation about diversity and representation about the films that are screened there anyway. That was a big discussion last year. So seeing it now, I'm really glad to have seen it because I didn't get a chance to see it. And with that at the back of my mind, I really enjoyed it for its authenticity. And I love when films work with non-actors or first-time actors and you get a raw kind of unapologetic realness, which sometimes is lost once they go through the proper methods of training school and all that stuff. But in this moment, you get believable scenarios. And there were lots of believable scenarios in this community who have been ravaged by colonialism. And, you know, we constantly talk about the plight of black people and especially over here in America. But the Native Americans have probably have had it worse because that was their land that was stolen. Specifically, this um, reservation, there's high percentage of poverty, high percentage of alcoholism, high percentage of drug misuse. And they suffer the same things that other black Americans speak about being overly represented in, in prisons and stuff like that. So I feel like I wanted to have a sense check with someone who's Native American to say that, am I okay watching this and enjoying it for what I'm seeing in this life that's hard, that's troubled. However, these two boys, their lives, parallel as they are, there's an element of hope. I laughed with them. I was rooting for them. My heart rose and sunk with their roller coaster journey. And it wasn't, it wasn't too voyeuristic and negative, though you can see that their life is hard. It didn't seem exploitative. There is a white character, the turkey farm owner, who I guess could be set up as the villain, him and his wife. And especially his wife, I was like, oh, here we go. She definitely played the role of the privileged white woman. And their narrative, I kind of underpinned the conversation about the state of the lives of Native Americans and who's to blame. I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I'm right to enjoy it because I'm conscious of other people telling other people's stories and knowing the struggles of if these guys wanted to bring the story by themselves, they would have struggled. And Riley has spoken about how hard it was to get this story made because people say there's no interest in hearing about Native Americans on a reservation. No, I mean, I hope there is now because it was really good. And yeah, like I guess agreeing with you, that's why I say it's bittersweet in terms of like me enjoying it per se, because there were aspects of it that I did like but then it's kind of like the realisation of what they're going through. And obviously it's not a documentary, but at the same time, it brings you in to that world so so seamlessly that you're upset and you're fearful for what these young kids have to go through. So, yeah. I just want to quickly say that it's just mad how black culture permeates everything. So hip-hop is their backdrop, their soundtrack, along with their tradition and culture that's there. But even... Because over in the UK, we don't have like a strong Native American community that is easily identifiable. So even the way they spoke and came across, I was confusing them with Mexican, Latin American and the way they speak. And I'm, I'm like, but there's so much I don't know, which is why this film is important, because like me as a black person, I'm ignorant to so many other things. I would probably make the mistake and 
misheritage them based on what I assume I know about what we see of the Latin American community and Mexican community. In conclusion, we want more. <laughs> we need more. War Pony is an absolutely stunning piece of cinema. I thought that was really interesting, actually, what Akua was saying about the representation of the characters in the film. It's something that you do have to see on a big screen. It looks really beautiful, and the performances uh, from these new upcoming actors are, are really incredible. So do check that one out at your local picture house from the 9th of June. Our third and final review this month will be Stephen Williams's brand new film, Chevalier, starring Kelvin Harris Jr. This film is also in cinemas on the 9th of June. Now, Akua and Leon sadly couldn't get to a screening of this one, but Ogoa Joy, who you heard earlier in the episode talking to director Dion Edwards, has seen the film, and she spoke to our producer Kobe Omanaka about Chevalier. So now over to Ogo and Kobe for this final review of the episode. Welcome to Paris, Joseph. Monsieur, I fear this will not be a kind place to such a boy. Boy has talent, but one in particular that is exceptional. Very well. I realized the more I exiled, the less I was alone. Can you tell us, first of all, what's the setup for Chevalier? What's the, what's the synopsis in brief, please? It was such a lovely movie. So the movie is basically about an illegitimate son of African slave and a French plantation owner uh, called Joseph Boulognier. And he rises to, you know, French, to, to heights in French society because he's a gifted um, musician and violinist composer. And he's also a fencer. And the movie is, yeah, literally just exploring and seeing his amazing talent. There was even a battle between him and Mozart, which is a clip on YouTube that is just, it's such an incredible scene. And yeah, it's just showing his, you know, musical talent and how that rewards him with wealth in a society where black people aren't given much and obviously, you know, are seen as lesser than. Joseph has achieved status and power, essentially, um, because of his gifts and talents. But then the movie is about him obviously getting involved with a uh, in a love affair and that has consequences. <laughs> so tell me, who's in the film? So Kevin Harris Jr. plays Joseph and Lucy Boynton plays the Queen of France, of which the movie is also about their relationship on how, you know, this Queen of France, she takes him in, awards him the title of Chevalier, but then, you know, we see the breakdown in their bond and their friendship as they, you know, have two different, like, essentially, they come from two different worlds, essentially. What do we kind of get from the, the title? Does that lean into anything? Are we going to uncover what, what that means? I guess so. I mean, he is awarded the title of Chevalier. I guess it doesn't give away too much, but I guess it, it lets you know you to come to discover why he is awarded this title and you know what the title brings. As they say, like whatever comes up must come down. So you never know. Like something can just be taken from you, given to you, but also taken from you, you know. So would you recommend people see that? A hundred percent. Honest the, the music, if you're a fan of music and, and composition and classical music, it's a definite must, you know. For me, you know, when I think of classical music, obviously I think of Mozart and all of these greats. This is a true story, you know, Joseph Bronier is, a, is a, was a real person and his works were incredible. And it was actually so heartbreaking to know that you come to discover that his, most of his works were lost and not on that grand scale like the Mozart. So, yeah, I think if you are if you like music and you like history and you like period pieces and you love a bit of romance, which is some romance in this one, yeah, you, you definitely need to watch it. It's stunning. And is it one of those kind of uh, based on true stories where you feel that you have to dig 
go onto the Wikipedia and do a bit of a deep dive afterwards. 100%. I mean, it, the movie, yes, a lot of these like biopics end with like some text that describe, you know, the full story because obviously they can't tell you all of his history in what, you know, in a t- under two hour movie. But the text at the end just makes you go, oh my God, like how, like this is so unfortunate. And obviously us being Brits, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how many people know about French history and, and, you know, that kind of, that part of the world. It just, it does make you think, oh my God, I need to find this person and then discover their work and their art because it's amazing. And would you recommend watching it in the cinema versus waiting for it to come uh, to the home viewing experience on your Sofaplex? 100 million percent you must see this in the cinema i even spoke to when i spoke to kelvin and lucy yesterday at the junket they said this is one of those movies you have to see at the cinema to hear the sound to be immersed within the world it is a period piece you know it's not set set back in the day so you want to be you know immersed in in that world so yeah they were they were like you have to like this is one of those movies you have to see in the, in the cinema so yeah don't watch it on your laptop <laughs> watch it in the cinema <laughs> Okay, well, I'll make a beeline to the cinema as soon as possible. Thanks yes. a lot. Thank you so much. And one more thing. We've done our free film reviews. That's what I promised you. And we had one fantastic director interview already with Dion Edwards. I was lucky enough to speak to uh, the director, Rob Savage, who kind of made waves a few years ago with his film Host, a 56-minute long film shot on Zoom during the pandemic, which took off. It was a really remarkable piece of work, and and that sort of catapulted him into the presence of various Hollywood producers. And yeah, this is his first major Hollywood film, I suppose, starring Sophie Thatcher and Chris Messina, David Dasmalchi, and and a a really talented cast. And uh, that film is in cinemas right now, as we speak, right now. And it's a classic haunted house horror movie from the Masters, Stephen King and Rob Savage is such a sharp director it's really interesting to see him play uh, on this larger canvas and uh, yeah he was in town uh, just ahead of the film's UK release so I spoke to Rob about The Boogeyman here we go you're doing okay it's not real it's okay I mean, just walking in here, seeing all of the posters for the Boogeyman. This is big. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. <laughs> What's it like being at the centre of, you know, this is a, it's like a big summer movie. It's nice because it kind of snuck up on me and on us. It started as a little streaming movie, not mm. a little streaming movie, but it started had humble beginnings and has grown to be uh, this big screen movie. And, and uh, hopefully people show up and, and it becomes bigger still. It's amazing, and and it's only now really I can kind of start to let myself think about the fact that it's going to be in all these screens and that it's a Stephen King movie and that people are going to see it finally. That Stephen King name looms large on any, like, film or adaptation. That, it does. You know. <laughs> I've been trying to stop it from looming while we were making it. It's uh, You can't have that looming over you every day, but, yeah, no, it's really exciting. What point did you enter this? Um, you know, was it always going to? Was it on streaming when you were were you here? Was there a screenplay when you were attached? Like, wh- where did you join this project? It was right after host, so I guess I've been developing it for for I've been on this project for for coming on three years now or whatever that is. Um, yeah, and it had a, it had a, a long life even before I came on board. There'd been a draft. Um, Beckinwoods uh, had written a draft, and uh, that was what I read uh, when it got pitched to me. It's a very different movie from the one that ended up on screen, but the you know the kind of DNA of it was there, and they'd come up with this great way of building out the short story, which I remembered reading as a kid, and and had you know suitably messed me up. And um, 
yeah, and just the title and, and Stephen King's involvement and all of that felt felt really appealing. And uh, so I I came on board and I had I had quite a kind of clear idea of what I wanted to do with it. And I'd always wanted to do, you know, a big mainstream, scary, you know, James Wan style studio horror movie. And I just felt like this this could be it, and I could make something that was kind of uniquely scary with this and with this character and with this idea. So I worked with Mark Heyman to kind of develop this in, in a slightly different direction and come up with, with this version of the movie that ended up getting greenlit just right after we finished Dashcam. So oh, wow. it was a really kind of, this is the first time I've really stopped since <laughs> since Host and been able to to kind of consider all three movies. It was really back to back to back. That's a huge achievement, making three films in basically three years. And, yeah. you know, each one growing in scale and profile yeah. and all that sort of business. I want to do a movie a year until I drop dead. That's my plan. Cool. I, I will watch them. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got a really wonderful cast in this film. And uh, what I love is the story does center in true Stephen King fashion. It's about the family at the heart of it all. Completely. Uh, and I think you've got, you know, with Christmasina, like you get to see a side of him we don't often get to see. Yeah. Sophie Thatcher's wonderful as well. Like, mm. How did you build out your cast? That was the original pitch is that this movie, it was going to be ordinary people meets poltergeist. <laughs> so... It's going to be fun. It's going to be scary. It's going to be like you know, it's not going. It's not an A twenty four movie. It's going to be something that's fun and accessible. But in the scenes where we're dealing with with grief and we're obviously dealing with a family who are in a, you know a, a, a state of trauma, and I wanted that to feel not like the horror movie version of those scenes, but the the prestige drama version of those scenes. And the first way that you do that is by getting a great cast who who can really dig their teeth in and. You know, Chris is an actor I've wanted to work with for the longest time. I think he just makes everything he's in so much better. And he's able to bring such a kind of humanity to every part that he plays. And this is a... The character of Will is a tough part because he spends a lot of the movie going through a very internal struggle and he's very disbelieving and in denial for, for most of the movie. And yet you understand him and you empathise with him. The younger cast, Sophie and Vivian... I hadn't seen anything of Sophie. Oh, no, I'd seen no, I'd seen Prospect, a little indie movie she'd done. I hadn't seen any of Yellow Jackets, but I watched a couple of clips. And uh, with her, it was just an instinctual thing. I met with her on on Zoom, and I think she's she's both a fantastic actor and a fantastic human being, and and also a big horror fan, which really helps. Nice. So I was I went onto this Zoom. I was wearing a Possession T-shirt, and uh, she she was like, I love Possession. <laughs> so we spent most of the Zoom talking about really weird niche horror movies that we like, and. Uh, and that was essential because she's she's you know she's doing an incredible performance, but she's also doing a lot of horror stuff, a lot of nuts and bolts horror stuff that she needed to like imbue with with life and with emotion. And uh, she totally understands how those movies are put together, and she understands the mechanics of horror. So that was really fun. We were both on set every single day. She's in almost every single shot of the movie. Oh and yeah. It felt like we were building this movie together. Vivian's part, she plays the youngest uh, kid, Sawyer was originally a boy character and we were just auditioning lots of kids at that age, like seven, eight, nine. And all the boys were just so annoying. They were just <laughs> really irritating. I had a feeling that if we opened it up and we started auditioning girls, we'd find the right person. And we we, we opened up the brief and Vivian was one of the first girls that auditioned and she she's so funny and wise beyond her years. And, you know, she's been working since she was like five or six. She did, she was in Bird Box. And, wow, okay. Um, and then she was, I didn't know this at the time, but she obviously played, played young Princess Leia in the start, whatever that Star Wars series is called. And part of what I was looking for was these actors to bring their own personality to the screen as well. They're, they've all got such great personality that I think you can feel in the in the the warmth of those scenes. 
Yeah, you believed them as a family unit. Yeah. Especially hard when there's people of different generations and like younger actors to yeah. explain the gravitas of the situation. But she delivers such a grounded, realistic performance. And mm. she's got some of the main moments. Like I think the most, I think it's on the poster as well, the her with that orb, the, um, the like, moon the, wall. The, yeah, it's yeah. such a good idea to have as a, I guess, like in a horror film. Yeah. You know, yeah. where the character can hide, where the monster can hide in the dark and having a mobile light like It's that. a complete accident <laughs> as well. You know, originally it was, originally that was a toy lightsaber. Oh, wow. But then because she's Princess Leia, she meant to have this toy lightsaber. It was meant to be malfunctioning functioning and mm. and it ended up being that Disney would didn't want that sounds complicated yeah <laughs> there was you know it's it's it is what it is and so we had to hurriedly two weeks before we started shooting come up with this idea of the moon ball and rewrite all of those scenes oh, wow. and it ended up being the best part of the movie yeah because it's like I guess for listeners like there's a great opening sort of where it rolls into the corner and you just know that's going to come back yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all foreshadowing uh, and I think later on there's some fairy lights uh, used to very good effect as well. Yeah. You, you, you play with light and dark really well because the conceit of the film, the monster hides in the dark. So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of, of, of that. Well, that's the thing. And that's the film in a nutshell is it's, it's, this is the boogeyman. We all know this thing lives in the darkness. Doesn't like, you know, if you're afraid the boogeyman's in your closet, you turn on your bedside lamp, you know that you're safe so long as you're in the light. You know this thing lives in your basement or under your bed. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. In fact, we're trying to take this like primal childhood fear and make it scary again. So it was really about like, there's this battle between light and darkness and this thing lives and thrives in the dark. Now, how can we introduce different sources of light into all of these scenes that gives the movie its own visual identity that, that feels playful, that feels scary? And so rather than having characters with, you know, malfunctioning flashlights and... Uh, like shake and, it a couple of times. Yeah, like, like all this stuff. <laughs> it's like, let's use a moon ball. Let's mm. use some Christmas lights. Let's use, let's use the video game and uh, and finding ways to um, to kind of dramatize that in different ways. What's it like designing a creature for the big screen? Because, I, you know, it's, it's quite uh, distinctive. Yeah. I hear it's really creepy. Thank um, you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> but what um, how, what's that process like? Does it take a long time? Does it start from sort of a doodle on the back of a napkin and, and you know, what, what, what happens? It uh, it took takes a long, long time. It was we didn't lock that until maybe a week before we started shooting. We went in so many different directions, and it needed to be something that that felt simple and clean. You know, it's the boogeyman, after all. It didn't want to feel too too fancy, but it also wanted to feel distinctive. And also, I wanted I had this idea of um, ultimately you're going to see this creature at the end. You know, this this like I said, this isn't an A24 movie. This is a big studio horror movie. The audience wants to see the creature at the end. They want the the family to face it down, but when you see the creature, I want it to still remain scary and unknowable, and I want to leave room for the audience's own interpretation of what the boogeyman is. You know, everyone sees their own creature in the darkness when they're afraid. So we came up with this idea of, of a, a creature that has this, like, you know, without spoiling it, this kind of hidden aspect to it that we see in a, in a particularly weird body horror Lovecraftian moment towards the end. And the idea is that you you see the creature, but you don't even begin to understand it. There's, there, there are aspects to this thing and how it operates that, that hopefully kind of set the audience's mind alight and make them leave the cinema feeling just as unsafe. Well, thank you, Rob. As mentioned, the film is in cinemas right now. Do seek it out. I'm, I'm not very good with horror films, and I did find myself... My my trick when watching a horror film is always to look at the fire exit in the cinemas, and I did find myself doing that a little bit with The Boogeyman if I think something scary is about to happen. And I think that's the sign of a good film. So yeah, if by my count it's got two or three look-at-the-fire-exit moments, uh, which means something very scary was happening on screen and I just couldn't bring myself to look. But um, yeah, really, really effective 
piece of filmmaking. Uh, so seek that one out. Thank you, Rob. That brings us to the end of our sort of main, I guess like the meat <laughs> of the podcast, the, the filling of the sandwich. But what I really love to do when we have our guest film critics on, uh, Akua and Leon this month, I love to ask them what's currently on in cinemas that they would recommend and what they're looking forward to seeing later in the year on the big screen. So let's hear Leon and Akua's recommendations and we can hear more about what else they do and where we can find more of their work. I'm excited, right? I'm in the cinema right now that I really want everyone to go and see. I know it might sound ridiculous. I maybe not know everyone's talking about it. Little Mermaid. It is phenomenal. It is it's phenomenal. It was my favorite animation when I was growing up. This reimagining live action version is so, 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 so good. So good. I've seen it three times just because I'm just so happy. Halle Bailey, mwah, chef's kiss. She's amazing. She is aerial. It's perfect. Perfect casting. Absolutely. Absolute high middle finger to all the racists that were naysaying it. Brilliant casting. I have one issue, but I won't bring it to the table. Everyone else can discover it by themselves. But and that could have been done better much better but other than that brilliant go see it so for me it was quite tough to kind of choose the type i mean obviously i go to cinema a lot but it was tough to choose the type of films that i wanted people to see because right now obviously we're in summer right now so it's like blockbuster everywhere but within there there was this i mean i guess you could class it as a blockbuster because this filmmaker is doing so well at the moment but the film that i really really like is bo is afraid which i would love to know how this is described in a sentence to, to people who need to watch it. But it's essentially about a, a guy who's weighed down by anxiety and guilt and mother issues who has to leave his apartment to visit his mum. But he gets into a car accident, so he misses the flight to her house. And then we kind of go on this weird roller coaster of like his dreams and his nightmares manifesting in this crazy world. It's really, really hard to describe. It's like watching, if anybody's seen Fantasia, it's like watching Fantasia or who framed Roger Rabbit, or watching a really weird episode of Bojack Horseman. It's just extremely weird. The filmmaker, Ariasta, he done Midsummer and Hereditary, which are, you know, quite groundbreaking horror films. And this is supposed to be like a horror comedy, and it is to a degree. Like, it, it's so hard to describe the ride that it takes you on. It's kind of like seeing a counseling session being manifested all over the place. It's got a linear narrative to a degree, but you're taken to different worlds. And I think it's quite divisive for quite a few audiences, but you'll love it at the same time or you hate at the same time I don't know just watch it and so a film I'm actually looking forward to very quickly is They Clone Tyrone it's stars John Boyega Tiana Paris Kiefer Sutherland Jamie Foxx and it's supposed to be like a sci-fi government conspiracy theory I'm assuming they find some cloning going on I don't know what to expect I just want to see what it is I'm very 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 excited it's directed by Jewel Taylor, who wrote on Creed 2. It's his featured directorial debut. Yeah, I'm excited. Nice. I'm looking forward to the creator. I only saw the trailer last week. And from what I understand, it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where there is kind of a fight between humans and AI. So possibly not as uh, far into the future as it is right now, which is why I'm so interested. And there is a uh, officer played by John David Washington who has the task of finding the creator of this AI and taking them out. But they, from what I see in the trailer, they form some form of relationship. So it's, it will be quite hard for him to do so. And yeah, as somebody who is on the fence about AI, I think it's something that I'd really need to see and enjoy and see if I will accept it. I don't think I will, especially as a writer. I don't think I will, but we'll see. Okay same 
So I'm a writer producer and I also work in a drama commissioning team at BBC. I also run a network for above the line black talent called Insight. I started off in a web series space about 10 years ago and have continued to create a digital and television content and have a production company where we create shows and distribute them to different territories worldwide. I'm also on a Orion team at Roughcar and currently have a project with Papa Sadu attached, but where you can find me and find my work anyway. So leonmain.com is like the where you go to to find out a little bit more about what I do and what I'm up to. Main is spelled M-A-Y-N-E. So Leon M-A-Y-N-E dot com. And my social media is the main event. <laughs> main spelled like my surname, M-A-Y-N-E. That's on Instagram. And on Twitter is L-M-Rights. And I missed out that I actually run a podcast of a queer called The Circle, where we speak to black and brown talent in television and film. Um, our Instagram is Step Inside The Circle. and if you search long enough for the circle on on the on your favorite podcast platforms, you'll find us. I am a queer jamfi, and I'm the founder of the British Black Literature, the media platform that showcases the best of British Black creatives and our cousins across the world uh, who work in the arts across screen, stage, literature, and sound. You can find our website with lots of news reviews and interviews at www. <laughs> I've been told off for doing the www because I'm an auntie. www.thebritishblacklist.co.uk. We can find all our extra stuff on Instagram primarily and all the social media platforms. We're very, very busy on Instagram. And we have a podcast called TBB Talks where we talk to individuals in the arts a bit more in depth about the work that they do. As Leon almost forgot, I am the co-host, co-creator, co-presenter, co-producer of The Circle podcast, which as Leon has described, you can find on Step Inside The Circle. And if you put Leon's name and The Circle, it comes up a bit quicker when you search for it. And what else? I also producer of Your Aunties Could Never podcast, which is me and four other wonderful black women talking life and relationships and advice as your favorite aunties do. Go for the British Blacklist. That's where you find everything about us and me and the work that I do. Well, that just about brings us to the end of another edition of The Love of Cinema. Thank you very much for making it this far. Thank you for listening to the end. Two great interviews. Thank you to Dion Edwards and Rob Savage for being so generous with their time. Thank you to Ogawa Joy uh, for doing those interviews for us. But a big thank you to Akua Giamphi and Leon Main for being our, our lead film critics. Thank you so much, guys. Hopefully we'll hear you back on the show in the future. Uh, please look up their respective work. As mentioned a moment ago, uh, Akua does some fantastic work with the British Blacklist and Leon's podcast uh, with Akua sounds really great as well. So um, I'm going to be listening to that as soon as I finish recording this. A big thank you, as always, to Kobe Omanaka from Stripped Media, our show's producer, and the legend that is Maddie Searle, our fantastic editor. We literally couldn't make the podcast without the two of you, so a big thank you to Kobe and to Maddie. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please do subscribe or follow the podcast on your podcast catcher of choice, and do rate the show if your podcast app allows such a thing. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, for example, do. Others do not, uh, but it's always 
always good for us as the podcast creators to see those ratings and it helps other people find the show if you like what you've heard also do subscribe because we occasionally drop some special mini episodes and we've got a bunch coming in june which are often interviews with filmmakers or actors as they're available as they're in town as they're at our cinemas before their films release Uh, so we've got some bonus episodes coming and you'll be the first to hear those if you subscribe and our next monthly review episode will be july which is a big one we are very much in blockbuster season there and there's some amazing films coming up including barbie which i am personally very very excited for i've been sam clements thank you for making it to the end it's uh it's so nice to talk to you every month and look forward to seeing you soon have a great time at the cinema i hope whatever you watch is wonderful i hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think you can tweet us or instagram us uh, at picturehouses always nice to hear your reviews thank you once again i'll be back next month have a great time at the movies <laughs>